Hey there, and welcome to episode 24. Hopefully you have been enjoying this podcast and all of the movie-related talk that has gone along with it. As always, some of these movies are well-loved and hailed as the stuff of legend, while others may have flown under the radar when they first came out, and deserve kind of a revisit, a relook to see what made them so good in the first place, to see what's aged well, to see what might not have. Either way, if you have listened to this show before, then chances are you have heard me use this quote from actress Lauren Bacall as an opener. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at one of the most influential American horror movies ever made, 1968's Night of the Living Dead, directed by the horror maestro himself, George A. Romero. And we're also going to be talking about the 1990 remake, which Romero was directly involved with. In fact, he was the one who got the remake going. He produced it, and horror effects master Tom Savini directed it. There is, of course, the usual serving of quotable dialogue to kick things off, such as this one from Johnny as he teases his sister Barbara in the graveyard once he realizes how nervous she is in these surroundings with a storm brewing. They're coming to get you, Barbara. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. In a rural area outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the skies are gray and overcast as the movie opens on a Sunday afternoon with a wide, establishing shot of a car driving down a dirt road and the sounds of some strange and eerie music. The opening credits begin to roll, and we soon find out that in the car is a young man named Johnny and his sister Barbara. The two of them are on their way to visit their father's grave to place a wreath on it for their mother's sake. Johnny is complaining about how the three-hour drive blows a whole Sunday, and Barbara's just there like, well, we're here now, so let's just do it. They find the tombstone, they bring the wreath and a cross over to it. Ominously, the thunder begins to rumble as Barbara gets on her knees to pray in front of the grave. Johnny is not into this at all, and he says, come on, church was this morning, all right? She ignores him, and there's a flash of lightning with some more thunder. Johnny looks off in the distance and sees a strange-looking man sort of staggering along in their direction. But he's not too concerned. He just simply looks away, turns back to his sister, and says, Hey, I mean, praying's for church. Come on. Then she pulls a page out of the Caroline Ingalls playbook and puts her praying on hold to admonish her brother with, I haven't seen you in church lately. He chuckles and says there's not much sense in his going. He changes the subject and remembers when they were kids at the same cemetery and, and how he had jumped out from behind a tree and scared her and their grandfather shook his fist at him and said, Boy, you'll be damned to hell. Johnny laughs at this misspent youth. Barbara's not having it. She gets a little edgy at the memory and stands up and tells him to stop. He realizes that even though they're adults, she's still getting a little freaked out, so he decides to take this opportunity to dig into her. Unfortunately, he still sees that weird-looking dude stumbling towards them, so he drags him into this pathetic joke. I give you Johnny and Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara! Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! He jokes that he's getting out of here and playfully trots off past the stranger as she puts her hands in her pockets with her head down. She sullenly follows him to make their way back to the car. Just then, the stranger finally reaches her, stretches his hands out, and attempts to throttle her. Stunned, she screams out to Johnny for help. He runs over, he knows joke's over, he pulls this thing off of Barbara. She runs off and leans against the tombstone simply to watch. She sees Johnny and this thing struggling. She just watches <laughs> as Johnny and Zombie wrestle on the ground. As this is just six and a half minutes into the film, I feel no compunction in saying that Zombie gets the better of Johnny and kills him right in front of Barbara's horrified eyes. 
There is a great close-up shot of Zombie's face lifting his eyes and looking up from Johnny to her as lightning flashes a blast of light across his face and his soulless, empty eyes. She recoils from the eye-to-eye contact and runs off with him in hot pursuit. Oh, and hey, guess what? She trips. Yes, she trips. She falls to the ground. Of course, you never saw that one coming, right? She kicks off her shoes and dives into the car, but no keys. She locks the doors, and he goes mental, palms spread open, slamming the car window with them. He runs over to the passenger side and does the same thing there. This is a zombie with a mission. He turns around in a splendid case of deus ex machina, sees a conveniently located rock on the ground behind him. He's like, yeah, that'll work. He grabs it, smashes the passenger side window to smithereens. Little side note here, when they were filming this scene, the guy playing this zombie, he took the first smack against the window, the rock bounced off. Second smack, the rock bounced off again. He really slammed it the third time. It flew out of his hands and into the car. The rock hit George A. Romero, who was in the seat holding the camera. But anyway, Barbara screams, releases the emergency brake, and the car slides down a slope, and the thing hangs on for as long as it can until he can't. And is he pissed? She's free-falling in the car down the road. She tries to steer. Of course she can't. She smashes into a tree. Now, it's not clear if this is the same tree that Johnny just referred to from when they were kids, but if it is the same one, the irony is delicious. So I like to think that it is, that that was a nice little, a nice little uh, creative touch. So she gets out of the car through the passenger side and books it like a bat out of hell through the trees out onto the open road. She gets her bearings and begins sprinting down this paved road. Now, I gotta give props to this lady, Judith O'Day, who plays Barbara, for booking it barefoot on the pavement like she's Roger Bannister doing the four-minute mile. That's got to hurt the feet. She sees an isolated farmhouse across a field in the distance, decides to make it her next stop. So she runs across the field, all over branches and stones and pebbles and God knows what else. She tries to yank open the door, but it's locked. So she runs around to the other side of the house, but not before tripping again, of course. Then she and Zombie Man make eye contact in a moment of pure oh crap. But lo and behold, this other door is open, so she's able to run inside and she slams it shut and she locks it. We then get some interestingly melancholy string instruments playing as she catches her breath. The tears begin to fall. She goes from room to room, but there does not seem to be anybody home. She enters the kitchen, grabs a knife from the drawer as she keeps looking around. We get jump scam musical cues at the sight of stuffed animal head trophies on the wall. She doesn't offer as much of a reaction as you would think, though. She just looks out the window and sees that he's still out there, throwing things around and yanking out the phone line. So she goes over to the phone and picks it up, but sorry, it's dead. In the very next instant, it's suddenly pitch black outside and in the house. There's no transition. It's just from one shot to the next. It's like, I don't know what happened. Daylight savings, maybe. I don't know. But it's the movie's title, after all, so we can suspend disbelief and just accept the fact that it's now pitch black out and it's nighttime. She looks out the window again and is in for a nice surprise when she sees that not only is zombie still out there looking in at her, but so are two others. Same posture, same swagger. Same dead look in their faces. She whirls around and runs up the stairs in a moment that's probably exactly what Nev Campbell was talking about in Scream, when she says that in these movies the leading lady can't act and runs up the stairs when she should be running out the door. But up the stairs, Barbara goes, where she sees a half-eaten corpse lying on the ground facing her. At this, she yelps and runs back down the stairs and out the door. No sooner does she cross the threshold and step outside, when she's suddenly blinded by these lights shining right into her face. She covers her eyes, and we see a pretty dramatic close-up of a young man looking panicked himself and pretty apprehensive. They stare at each other for a couple of beats to make sure that each of them is not one of these zombies. He suddenly rushes towards the door, pushes her inside with him, like, yeah, she checks out, she's good. She's still got the knife in her hand, and he's got a tire iron. 
He shuts and locks the door, and now we have met the character Ben, played by Dwayne Jones. He tries to ask her a few logical questions, like, is there a key? Did you try the phone? Do you live here? She offers nothing, because she's now in a state of total mental shock. This is about 14 and a half minutes in, and thus begins for these two, and other unfortunates like them that soon make their presence known, that this is the Night of the Living Dead. So that's the plot setup of this classic B-movie, but let's talk a little bit about how it all began. Back in the early 1930s, Hollywood was enjoying a lot of success with the horror genre. Universal Studios, a B-movie studio at the time, was really raking in the cash with monster hits like Dracula and Frankenstein and The Invisible Man. Universal knew that this kind of movie was their cash cow, so they just kept going back for more and more milk. Bela Lugosi, hot off of his star-making role in Dracula, he did a movie called White Zombie, where he had a hypnotic stare and there was the concept of mystical forces. It was a hit, and the zombie subgenre was born. Boris Karloff did a zombie movie of his own called The Ghoul. Zombie films throughout the 40s and the 50s, however, they got more and more hokey as time went on, more, more gimmicky. And that brings us to the 1960s. And there are two gentlemen in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A one, George A. Romero, and another by the name of Russ Striner, who would actually go on to play Johnny in Night of the Living Dead. Together, these two guys formed a filmmaking company called The Latent Image, which was incorporated in 1961, according to Steiner. They knew that they wanted to do something in the production business, but they had absolutely zero experience. So for them, it was on-the-job training. It was based in Pittsburgh because at that time, the area was a hotbed of headquarters for different corporations. So this was really the place to be if you wanted to begin your own film production company as they did, because you're in the prime location for opportunities to come about to make commercials for all of these different companies. At the time, there were about 20 film production companies ranging from one-man operations to larger ones. Pittsburgh was the third leading corporate headquarters city in the U.S., so getting their feet in the door and making commercials for companies like Duke Beer, it brought them access to all of this filmmaking equipment that they may not have otherwise had access to. They learned their craft, they got started in this capacity, they got some financial stability. Eventually, they put their heads together because of a mutual desire to make a feature film. But they had no idea at first what kind of movie they wanted to make. They knew that a western was out because they had no access to horses. They knew that they couldn't follow the money and do like an Annette Funicello kind of beach blanket bingo flick that was all the rage at the time. They were nowhere near a beach. The thing is, is that they all loved horror. George A. Romero had been a fan of the horror genre since he was a kid. He especially loved horror comic books. They enjoyed watching Chilla Theater, which was a local Pittsburgh-based public access show. They saw a lot of these movies on TV, and they were convinced that they could do better. So each of them ponied up some dough to the tune of maybe $600. It was a group of 10 friends. They called themselves Image 10, so they had about 6 k 6000 and they kept trying to find additional investors. It's probably no surprise that the movie was shot on a minuscule budget, a very small local Pittsburgh film. Eventually, the budget came out to about $100,000. So Night of the Living Dead was truly a shoestring budget, as they say. The initial idea was that their horror story would begin in a cemetery. They figured it was a universal place of discomfort for a lot of people. So what began as an idea for a story about extraterrestrials, believe it or not, seeking human flesh, landing in a cemetery, became what we have now in Night of the Living Dead. They got a script ready to go. The script was loosely based on Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, about a man surviving among creatures who come out at night. They took the basis of this and turned it into the first draft of what would eventually become Night of the Living Dead. Little side story on George A. Romero. He never thought he could make films professionally. He said, and I quote, 
When I went to college, I went to study painting and design because my dad was a commercial artist, so that's what I went to study. And still, never, never thought of it as a career. It was just a love that I had. I loved movies for as long as I could remember. So my family sends me to college. My mom and dad drive me to Pittsburgh, end quote. And in one art class, he says, he drew a poster of Ben-Hur when he was supposed to be sketching a nude model who was in the classroom. But getting back to the production of Night of the Living Dead, the filming was broken up into segments. They shot all summer long throughout 1967. They began in June. Then there was a hiatus. Then they came back in the fall once they got a little bit more money, and they eventually finished in December of that same year. Post-production ended in April 1968, and the movie was unceremoniously released in October of 1968 in drive-ins and in movie theaters. Hardly anything that was any great shakes. A New York release in December of 68 did not do well with critics, with Vincent Canby of the New York Times writing dismissively that it was made by, quote, some people in Pittsburgh, end quote. But... By April 1969, the film was out of theaters and looked to be done and done. Then it was re-released in July of 1969, and that's when it began to develop a cult following, thanks in part to the fact that among its fan base was Andy Warhol's Inner Circle. Then in early 1970, the film was discovered in France, which led to another U.S. re-release in July of that year, 1970, and that's when it really took hold of the public's imagination. I want to swing in the direction for a bit of Judith O'Day, who plays Barbara. She's a Pittsburgh native, so she was on her home turf making this movie. She was not in Pittsburgh, though, when she was called by one of the producers, Carl Hardman, who plays Harry Cooper, and he invited her to audition. She was in California. She was trying to make it big in the movies at the time of the call. So she accepts the call. She packed up her stuff, returned home to Pittsburgh. She auditioned, and she got the role. And she says to this day that she's grateful for it because it changed her life. She said, quote, This was new. It was exciting. It's where I wanted to be. Anything that came my way, whether it was long hours, whether it was waiting two months to go back and readdress a scene that was already done, it didn't bother me. I loved doing it. End quote. So let's swing in the direction now of the top 10 fun facts, the countdown for 1968's Night of the Living Dead. So I do want to say, here is where the spoilers really begin. So if you have not seen the movie and don't want anything to be spoiled, this might be a good spot to hit the pause button. Go back, revisit the film, very accessible, because it is in the public domain. Just go on YouTube and you'll find it, and you'll be watching it completely safely and legally. Then come on back and finish this up, and enjoy the top 10 fun facts. Number 10. Another Pittsburgh native in the cast is Kira Shun. She plays the young daughter of the Coopers. She is now a middle school art teacher, 6th and 7th grades. Her father in real life was the actor and producer of the film who played her on-screen father, Carl Hardman. One morning in 1967, her mother had woken her up on a school morning and said to her, Honey, you're gonna flip. And she said to her mother, Why? And her mother said, You're gonna be in a movie. What kind of movie? And her mother told her a little bit about it. Her father came over and told her a little bit more about it. She was already a horror movie junkie. She, too, had really enjoyed the television show Chilla Theater. And so she thought to herself, I get to be a monster? I get to kill people? So she got all excited. And she recalls that her father did most of the direction of her scenes, especially the trowel scene. Actress Marilyn Eastman, who plays her on-screen mother, was not even there for the shots where Kira was stabbing. She was stabbing a pillow. The sound effects were put in later. So there she is, stabbing away while they're filming the scene, and she turned to her father and she said, uh, How long do I just keep stabbing? 
His direction was, just keep stabbing the pillow. So she did. There was someone behind her, she said, throwing black paint or chocolate syrup or something on the wall to make it look like blood was splattering. And she recalls, quote, it was great. It was really fun, end quote. Number nine, producer and actor Russ Striner, who plays Johnny. His mother in real life owned the Pontiac that he and Barbara are driving into the cemetery. The car had to go home after shooting wrapped at the end of each day so his mother could use it so that she could go on her errands, grocery store or whatever. And on one occasion, when she had her car back, she wrecked it. There was damage done to the driver's side door. There was damage done to the fender. So for the sake of continuity, they had to work in her car accident into the script and into the film. So if you look closely at the beginning, when the car scrapes up against the tree in the driver's side, as Barbara's trying to make her getaway, the damage is already there on the driver's side before the impact with the tree. That's the sort of low budget that they were working with. Number eight the cast of the movie, Complete Unknowns. The lead character of Ben, played by Dwayne Jones, he was originally written as a blue-collar worker, sort of a, an angry truck driver who talks rather vulgar, very coarsely. Dwayne Jones happened to be in Pittsburgh in 1967 over Easter, visiting his family, and he was introduced to Steiner and Romero by a mutual friend. And Romero said, quote, Dwayne turned out to be the best actor from among our friends, so we said, all right, Dwayne, you got it. We thought we were being very hip and changing the script because he was a black man. This was the 60s thing coming through. Dwayne actually thought we should take note of it. And in later years, and now particularly, I think we probably should have. Not to make it a big point, but to refer to it at least because of the anger of this guy. I think a person in any minority sees things a lot more clearly than people in the majority. Most things. But anger gets in the way. And we had written this guy as angry for no reason at all, but if you track the logic of the story, that rage that comes out would have been an interesting overlay. Not hitting it hard, but in an interesting overlay. Dwayne knew this. And we were going, no, we want this to be completely, you know, forget about it. The best way to do this is to not comment on it at all. Dwayne said, yeah, but you're asking me to slug a white woman. You know what's going to happen to me out in the street if this movie gets in the theater? He was completely sensitive to it all, and we weren't. We're white guys, thinking we're being cool, and yet being insensitive to the real root of the problem. End quote. Dwayne Jones was referred to as an erudite who taught at Vassar. He was always buried in a book between takes. He was reading James Joyce and psychology. And Dwayne Jones himself, there was an existing recording of him where he said, quote, There was a wonderful feeling of camaraderie, and good humor, and goodwill. They were wonderful folks to work for. They really were. End quote. Number seven, despite popular belief, Night of the Living Dead was not shot on 16mm film. It was shot in 35mm monochrome, black and white. They were considering color, but budget limitations prevented that from happening. Number six, one of the working titles for the film was Night of the Flesh Eaters, but the distributor, the Walter Reed Corporation, they already knew of a film called The Flesh Eaters, so the title was changed to what it is now to prevent confusion and to prevent marketing problems. Ironically, the word zombie is never said once in the entire movie. Number five, they forgot to include the copyright information underneath the title card in the opening credits. Based on copyright law at the time, that immediately placed the film in the public domain. So people can copy the print, movie theaters can show it without booking it, the film can go far and wide because nobody owns it. Which is why you can watch it for free on YouTube, safely and legally. Number four, Wes Craven saw it in Times Square and was floored by what he saw as the political content of it. 
John Carpenter. He watched it as a film student at USC, University of Southern California. He was incredibly inspired by it and went on to make Halloween. By the way, check out episode 23 for a retrospective on the entire Halloween franchise if you haven't listened to it yet. Dario Argento loves the film, and he raves about its political content as well. Number three, that ending. Poor Ben. He survives the night of horrors, and he thinks he's about to be rescued. He's mistaken for a zombie, and he is shot right between the eyes. Given the shocking downer of an ending, it is no understatement to say that for some 1968 critics and audiences, the film did hit a raw nerve. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed six months before it was released. The Vietnam War was a staple of the evening news seven days a week with raw combat footage that was never before seen, in previous generations, I mean, on television. Protests, those were pretty commonplace, pertaining to the Vietnam War, pertaining to the Civil Rights Movement, especially at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago that very same year. That whole thing was depicted last year in Netflix's The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was up for a handful of Oscars. Village Voice film critic Jay Hoberman noted that this movie, quote, was made in the most violent year in American history since the Civil War. It's shot like cinema verite, as though it were the evening news. It never wavered from its desire to terrorize the audience and offer no hope at the end, end quote. Number two, despite all of this, George A. Romero insisted that he never intended for Night of the Living Dead to serve up any kind of social commentary at all. Now, I already referred to the casting of Dwayne Jones in number nine, but that didn't stop some more traditional and conservative folks from regarding just going to see the movie at all as an act of rebellion against the moral authority of older generations, represented by parents and editorial writers and some film critics, people like that. According to Variety, the film cast doubt on, quote, the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for unrelieved sadism, end quote. And number one. All of that negative backlash may have occurred, but guess what? Not only is the movie a cult classic, but it's also been added to the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, end quote. So there. And again, Romero never saw any residuals from this flick, which eventually became hailed as a trailblazer for the zombie subgenre of horror. So to rectify this, and to keep anyone else from taking on a remake themselves and getting the coveted copyright in the process, 22 years later, in 1990, he set out to remake the film himself. And that brings us to 1990's version of Night of the Living Dead, written by George A. Romero, just like he was one of the writers of the original. The first obvious difference between the two is that the 1990 remake is shot in full-blown color. For that reason, to me... It does lack a lot of the starkness and the bleakness of the original. There's something, there's just something to be said for a low-budget film that, that's admittedly shot pretty crudely, but in a way that establishes atmosphere and mood, you know, when there's the shot contrast between light and shadows. But there is a lot of good stuff to say about this 1990 version, too. It's surprisingly a lot better than I remember it being. When it first came out, I was a teenager, and I remember thinking to myself, this is not the original. I don't like the fact that the opening takes place in broad daylight forever. And like with any remake, it can sometimes be difficult when you're so familiar with the dialogue from the original to see the exact same dialogue being reiterated by different actors with different vocal inflections, different tones of voice, so... I have to admit, I did not really give it too much of a chance, and I haven't seen it for a good long time. This is my first time seeing the remake in probably about 29 or 30 years to get ready for this episode. 
and it is surprisingly better than I remember it being. Reiterating the plot setup of this one will probably be redundant, so instead, suffice it to say that I'm going to go right into the spoiler alert so that we can talk about the remake in all of its fine details. For one thing, the character of Barbara is completely redefined. In the original, she pretty much takes a back seat once she falls into her state of shock and doesn't have too much dialogue. She doesn't offer much more to what's going on. Her time in the spotlight really is the first part of the film, right up until she loses all cognizance of her surroundings. Here in the 1990 remake, after the initial shock passes, she becomes a fighter. Ben is still the one who rallies. Cooper is still an SOB. Tom and Judy, the young couple, they're still young and earnest. There's a lot more blatant social commentary in this one. For one thing, with the character of Barbara and the way that she's redefined, you have a female leading character who is tougher, who is more resilient, who is more self-reliant. From the beginning, there are all of these hints through dialogue that the humans fighting off the zombies are actually just as mindless, just as savage. There are reports over the radio that they're listening to of people tying these zombies up and suspending them upside down and actually using them as target practice, shoving them by the truckload into piles and mocking them, jeering. And Barbara, at the end of the movie, when she survives all of the bloodletting, She's outside, and she's walking around as the zombies are all being rounded up by the authorities, and she sees all of this lunacy around her, and she sees them being strung upside down, hanging by tree branches, being lynched, and she offers this assessment. She says to herself, quote, they're us. We're them, and they're us, end quote. Not the most optimistic appraisal of human nature, but there it is. And moving into the fun facts, I don't have the usual 10 here because I actually couldn't find as many fun facts for this 1990 remake that I thought would be worth including, so we only have four this time. Number four, look closely at the very beginning when Barbara's running away from the cemetery and she approaches the farmhouse. There is a dolly shot of her running down a hill towards the camera, and she's in her bare feet, just like she was in the original. Here, she's running down the hill, and at the bottom of the hill, there's some gravel on the ground, and the camera pans to the right as she's running up to some haystacks and screaming, is anybody there? This is when she's approaching the farmhouse. In order to know exactly what moment I'm talking about here, pause it when you see screenplay by George A. Romero appear on the screen. At that moment, we see her from the waist up, and she's standing in front of these haystacks and a couple of garbage barrels or something like that. Someone is out of camera range and putting shoes on her feet so that once she begins moving again, walking across the gravel, the actress wouldn't scrape up her feet. The director of the movie, Tom Savini, he wanted that one long, uninterrupted take, so they came up with that off-camera trick as a way of being considerate of her. Number three, the actress who plays Barbara, Patricia Tallman, or Patty to her colleagues, she and director Tom Savini knew each other for years before this movie. They both went to college together at Carnegie Mellon. Number two, speaking of Tom Savini, he had really wanted to work on the 1968 original, but he was stationed in Vietnam at the time as a combat photographer. He built himself up a pretty solid reputation in Hollywood as a creative makeup artist. He can boast of having worked on movies such as the original Friday the 13th in 1980, 1982's Creepshow, 1984's Friday the 13th Part 4, The Final Chapter, 1985's Day of the Dead, 1986's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He's also an actor. He played a motorcycle biker in 1978's Dawn of the Dead. You see him in the pie fight scene inside the mall. And he also appears as a garbage man in Creepshow. 
And number one. A little bit of a real-world connection here. Once Barbara reaches the front door of the farmhouse, look closely at the sign next to the door. It says M. Celeste. Now, when I was first watching this, I thought maybe it might have been a nod to Mama Celeste Pizza, but it's actually a subtle reference to the boat, the Mary Celeste. If you're not familiar with the story, the Mary Celeste, back in 1892, left New York City for Italy. I think it was November. By early December, it was found adrift on the choppy seas east of the Azores. The only lifeboat that it had was missing. There were about maybe three, three and a half feet of water in the ship's bottom. Strangely, though, the six-month supply of food and water was intact. Ten people had been on board. Seven crew, the captain and his wife, their two-year-old daughter. It's never been determined, really, what happened to them. It's like the lost colony of Roanoke. Tom Savini wanted the farmhouse in this movie to give off the same vibe as the Mary Celeste when it was discovered. Abandoned, but food still on the stove, cigarettes still smoldering in the ashtrays. Kind of a haunted, ghostly kind of vibe that it would give off. That's what he was going for. And there you have the fun facts for 1990's remake of Night of the Living Dead, which I would recommend a viewing of. And one final piece of business, the trivia segment. As always, it doesn't matter when you send in your answer. If you're listening to this and it's Valentine's Day, if you're listening to episodes out of order, it doesn't matter. Just answer whatever question you want, whenever you feel compelled to. You'll get a personalized meme and a shout-out in the following episode. And here it is. In 1993, George A. Romero directed a feature film starring Academy Award winner Timothy Hutton, as well as Amy Madigan and Academy Award nominee Julie Harris. It's a horror movie based on a Stephen King novel about a writer named Tad Beaumont, whose fictional alter ego named George Stack becomes real and manifests physically and wants to take over Tad's life. Name this book and the film. Same title. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on any of the Night of the Living Dead films or your memories of them, if you enjoy them, if you hate them, whatever it is that you want to say about them, hit me up on my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter. The Film Group Silver Screen is on Facebook. Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram. Or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. As for last week's question, we looked at the Halloween franchise, and the question was, how many films in that series does Donald Pleasance appear in as the character Dr. Sam Loomis? And the correct answer is... Five. He stars in the first two, 1978's original and 1981's Halloween 2, and then he appears as Dr. Loomis in 4, 5, and 6, before his passing, shortly before the release of 6 in 1995. And standing on the podium with the prize-winning meme is none other than Jamie Ty, who guest-starred on that episode and is a certified Halloween superfan. Personalized meme on its way to you, and give my best to Eric, Jamie. And thank you to all you listeners who voted in this week's poll. The poll asked which of the Night of the Living Dead characters is your favorite. You had the option of Johnny, Barbara, Ben, and Harry Cooper. After tallying everything up from Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, it looks like, even though Johnny got a little bit of the attention, most of the love went to our beloved Ben. I do have to say that I am not in the least bit surprised. He is one of the strongest ones, if not the strongest one, both physically and mentally. Watching him trying his damnedest to rally everyone gives the movie a lot of its dramatic thrust, I think. I have to go with Ben myself. I'd have to say he's my favorite, too. As for the two movies themselves, Mike W. has this to say, Never saw the remake, but had to top the original black-and-white classic. 
Fair enough, Mike, and I would totally agree with that. Certainly as far as the aesthetics go. Like I said, the mood and the atmosphere, the blackness of it all that only black and white can really visually convey. So thank you for reaching out. And that wraps up today's show on both versions of Night of the Living Dead. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give the show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods, Buzzsprout, wherever you listen to your podcasts, that does help to increase the show's visibility and boost the algorithms. And if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be very much appreciated as well. Thank you for joining. Rock on. And until next time, keep on screening. And if anyone ever asks you to describe what a zombie actually is, look no further for a good explanation than the one that the authorities in the 1968 original offer. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up.